Welcome to Terrible, the podcast where two friends discuss true crime stories in hopes to prepare themselves for life's most terrible things. Quick disclaimer, the following podcast will include graphic and explicit content. Our goal is to respect victims and their families. We do not want to sensationalize crimes or glorify criminals. We are not experts. We want to tell these stories in order to learn from them and make sure victims and their families are not forgotten. I'm Renee, a longtime true crime enthusiast. Marie, on the other hand, has recently delved into all that is true crime. We both believe that once you watch or listen to your first case, there's no going back. So let's do this. Just before we get started, we want to mention that we do have a merch store. You can find us on Etsy, so if you look us up at Terrible True Crime and you want to support the show, there's lots of great stuff on there. And the last thing is that it really helps when you rate the show and leave a review or a comment wherever you listen. Alright, let's get into some updates. So I don't have too much going on. We do have some family visiting us this weekend, which will be nice. It's always nice to have family over. Give us a little piece of home. So we'll be doing kind of the classic touristy things, but (laughs) more chill. We won't overdo it. It'll be a lot of probably breweries and just like local stuff, which will be nice. So I'm looking forward to that. And other than that, last weekend, I had another Facebook marketplace find. And I know a lot of people (sighs) are super into Facebook marketplace. You're so good at it. Every time you always find the best things. Okay, well, we were looking for a bar. Back when we were living in the apartment, we had a really nice bar cart and we still have it, but it looks so tiny in our house now. Mm. So we were looking for something that could replace it, but everything new was like, I'm not in love with it. And it was also like $500. Yeah. So I was like, ugh, like, I I don't know, for something that we technically already have, even though like it looks a little strange in our space. And then we thought like, maybe we'll build one this summer. Like they can't be too complicated. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So like, anyway, then I was on Facebook Marketplace and I saw this like old, like vintage looking bar cabinet. And the other thing with Facebook Marketplace is that people list stuff at ridiculous prices. Yeah. Or like vintage table. And I'm like, no, that is just an old table <laughs> that you were listing. For like, like scratches and yes, like, for like $600. So like I tend not to buy stuff on there. Like I actually like play the game with Matt where we just like send each other back and forth. Just like ridiculously priced Facebook Marketplace yeah. things. Like how do they think they're going to get this money? for that item it kind of ruins like the thrifting aspect of it but for this cabinet they had listed on for like 80 dollars, and it was for sure like worth more than that it needs work but the plan is to refurbish it a little bit so we bought it good at that well (laughs) (laughs) i've tried in the past i refurbished our dining room table and this we're hoping will kind of be like a match to our dining room table so we'll get the same paint that we used so that they can like look like they're a set that's something about renee she's like the best researcher on how to make something look good like I had even if it's just clothing when I visited her we went hiking and I had these white shoes on the whole hike <laughs> came back home and she's like oh I could wash those for you and they were like two years old <laughs> you're gonna throw them out <laughs> I was literally gonna throw them out they look brand new after she was done with them I'm like wow I need to be more like Renee she's so good <laughs> maybe I'll post pictures but yeah, yeah the plan is to refurbish but I know a lot of people flip furniture and mm-hmm. they even make profits off of it yeah but like i was saying like i don't know how they make profits off of it now because everyone's so into the putting stuff out mm-hmm. of marketplace kijiji whatever that things i just find are like way overpriced oh well so yeah i'm looking forward to that so that'll be a fun a fun little project to work on and the last thing i forgot to mention last episode is that the idea behind last week's case and this week's case is that i put a poll up on our instagram because i couldn't decide what case i wanted to do 
And I kind of put two things up. So like I picked this or that without even having any cases in mind. So one was like, tell me a case where the father did it and tell me a case where the husband did it. And you guys voted and it was like split 50-50 down the middle. So I was like, perfect. Now I got to find two cases. Like it was then- literally split yes. 50-50 on the middle. And I love the husband did it cases. So for a while, the husband did it was losing. And I like texted Matthew and I was like, I'm upset. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm really glad that it got split 50-50 down the middle because that'll go into this week's case and we recently pulled a pull up for our Pride episode. So anyway, that was really fun. So I'll probably keep doing that in the future, like this or that Mm -hmm. for cases. So I thought that was interesting. But yeah, that's pretty much all that's going on with me. Well, since Renee has a project on the go, I had a project last weekend that I never really thought I would do because I am not someone who has like a good green thumb. Like I do not like yard work whatsoever. (laughs) And Cody hates flowers or anything like that so in our backyard we just always just just had grass like that's it and then I had maybe one or two flower pots that I would make like just for fun but I was like no like I need to get out of the house do things in the backyard so we ended up building a flower box I call it I call it a garden maybe because I'm just French and that's just what I call it but he's like like gardens for vegetables yeah 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 so I so we built this flower box um, so I'm really excited to like choose which flowers I want to plant in there, Fun. but it doesn't get much sun. So I have to make sure I don't kill them. So Just I'm pick to... something that says like low. Yeah. I'm going to have like, to like moderate spend time whatever. trying to figure out what will survive in some shade. So that was my project. We'll continue. Hopefully it goes well, but it looks really <laughs> cute. I have like a bunch of these little frogs that I get from like Dollarama or wherever. I'm like, I could just put them in my garden. It's going to be so cute. I'm like, I feel like such an old lady. Oh, I had another update, but I forget now. You haven't talked about the Tim Beebs cold brew. Have you tried it? No, I haven't tried it yet. (laughs) I need to though. Oh my God, Tim Beebs. Some people like hated on it because they were like, I just taste like a Timbit. But I swear they were so good. What was it supposed to taste like? Well, they're like, there's nothing special about it. They were some different flavors yeah, in there. I, ha- I had uh-huh. a Tim Beebs Timbit myself, and they were uh, pretty good. <laughs> I was actually just on TikTok before we started recording, and I guess he canceled his show, mm-hmm. I think, in Toronto. Yeah. And people were, like, flying in for the show, and they get there, and it's canceled. I'm like, oh, that would really suck. <sighs> That's what I thought of, too, when I heard that. Like, any artist canceling, you have to think, like, they're mm-hmm. human, too, so they obviously have to cancel yeah. sometimes. But what sucks is if you bought tickets to go to a concert that you have to, like, actually fly to or take the train or drive in hotel rooms. That's a bummer for sure. I feel like we take for granted the fact that we, like, grew up in a major city because, mm-hmm. like, I have met, like, a lot of people now that grew up in, like, small towns, like, hours away from major cities. Yeah. And they had to literally, like, if they wanted to see a concert, it was a hotel room and they had to, like, trek down. That's Just true. Like, one night yeah. concert. I didn't even think of that. That's so true. The sources for this week's case are a CBC article by Paola Lorigio, several other CBC News articles, a Toronto CTV News article by Austin Delaney. There's also an article from The Star, a National Post article, and an article from The Spect. Melanie Bittersing was born in Jamaica in 1977. In 1991, Melanie was 13 years old. Her and her two brothers, Dwayne and Cleon, moved to Canada, leaving their mom behind. The family made the decision to send the kids to Canada to live with their father. Their mother was really hoping that this would allow them to have a better life. Their father's name was Everton, and he was married to a woman named Elaine. The couple lived in Toronto, Ontario. 
They also had two young sons and a third child on the way. So this was about to be a busy apartment filled with children. So mm. this is not a house. They're all moving into an apartment. I don't know how many bedrooms, but I can't imagine it was more than two. And they are two adults and six kids. Also, 22nd floor. Like, imagine the elevators are broken and you have to lug six kids upstairs. Well, when you lived in Toronto, how far was your apartment up? Not far up. I was on the fifth floor. Yeah, I can't imagine. Because we also lived on the fifth floor in our last apartment. And when the elevators were down and I had groceries, like, I was sweating. Like, it was was a workout. Yeah. Yeah. So when they get there, Melanie is 13, Dwayne is 12, and Cleon is 16. In 1992, the siblings have been there for about a year. And things were not going so well at home for Dwayne. Everton, their father, had allegedly threatened to send Dwayne back to Jamaica. Things got so bad, and th- so the details aren't really clear. I At this point, when I was reading and researching the story, I thought, yeah, he's 13. You know, <laughs> again, preteen. Preteen. Preteen, yep. teen, you know. And, but things got so bad that Dwayne tracked down a family friend and actually ran away to the woman's house in June of that year. He was there for one night before Everton found him. Everton showed up at this woman's door, so the woman went to get Dwayne. It was, you know, it's his son. (laughs) She went to get Dwayne and woke him up. I'm guessing it was early enough in the morning. But before leaving, Dwayne told this woman, he's gonna kill me. And not long after this, Dwayne was dead. Oh. Yeah, this escalates really quickly. Uh, This is also an awful case. They're all awful, but like awful um so he's gonna kill me it's not necessarily like this like huge red flag like my mom's gonna kill me if i'm late like right that's something people say like i'm sure i've said Mm -hmm. it or you know but like i said not long after Dwayne was dead i'm just wondering (laughs) i'm just wondering like what would the dad have to have done to Dwayne before this for him to say he's gonna kill me yeah must have been some bad things and we kind of talked about this too like in in the Rena case with the rumors and stuff it's like when someone says something you might not think too much about it and then looking back you're like mm-hmm. uh, uh like shit. whoa yeah. yeah Dwayne's death was eventually ruled a suicide Melanie and Dwayne's mother was I'm sure very devastated by the news she actually tried to get Melanie sent back to Jamaica but she wouldn't be successful in this I can imagine it's pretty hard once your children have immigrated to Canada to try and get them to come back like without actively being there but I'm not sure but I'm assuming it'd be hard and I can't imagine what it was like for her to send her kids to a different country in the hopes of them having a better life and getting that kind of news Mm -hmm. and I'm sure just left wondering like what happened yeah this next quote is from a Toronto Star article by Rosie DiMano Officers who investigated Dwayne's death were told by Cleon that he'd been called into his parents' bedroom. We heard the balcony door open and Dwayne came out and saw him standing on the railing and he jumped. Man, he jumped. The first responding cops interviewed Melanie and they certainly took notice of the 15-year-old's vast array of injuries. One of the officers' notes entered at the preliminary hearing covered two full pages. Welts and scratches across her arms and legs, a cut to the head, bruising on her stomach, swollen nose, swollen ankle, swollen hand. The girl declined an offer for medical attention. Melanie blamed her injuries on Dwayne. Cleon claimed Dwayne was jealous of his sister and had beaten her the previous day. She corroborated the story. Cleon also told police the baby would fuss and cry if Melanie left for treatment. Different officers following up the reports a few days later were told by Everton 
that Dwayne had been a handful since arriving, that he was envious of Melanie, and he, Everton, had warned Dwayne that he'd be sent back to Jamaica if he continued hurting his sister. This just before Dwayne went over the railing. Everton further claimed that Dwayne had threatened suicide before. The investigators believed the family accounts. Child welfare authorities were never notified. The sudden death investigation never evolved into a criminal investigation. When the coroner eventually ruled Dwayne's death a suicide, the case was closed. So that gives us kind of a look into the investigation, which is interesting, but but also feel like child welfare authorities, as they put it in this article, should should probably have been notified anyway, mm-hmm. just to check in on Melanie, like Eve and Cleon and the other kids, right? They mentioned a baby in the article, and this is probably Everton and Elaine's youngest child that it seems like Melanie had a big part in caring for. There are red flags here, and whether it was Dwayne's doing or not, I feel like still would have been worth it i don't know i feel like it's kind of a legal thing when you see that kind of stuff you just have to do your due diligence even if like it's not necessarily a hundred percent so from what we know after this incident home life was not ideal for the family but like let's be real like this is a lot of injuries for a 13 year old boy to inflict on his sister Melody's mother had been trying to keep in touch with her especially after this happened to Dwayne. eventually she's unable to reach melanie She and everyone else who was wondering, which was not many people, were told that Melanie had ran away to the United States. Kind of very vague, that's that's all they're told. In September of 1994, remains are discovered in a burning suitcase in a parking lot north of Toronto. What's up with these suitcases? I know. Like, honestly, I found these two cases because I was listening to which I uh, we put in the show notes for last week, but it's the episode of The Detectives, uh, the podcast I was listening to. It's a CTV podcast. And the investigator on the last week's episode was the same investigator on this episode, or in this case. And so this case obviously came first. And after the second case, he was like, yeah, I'm done. Like, he retired. Because yeah. he literally, you know, basically says during the episode, he's like, I was sick of finding people in suitcases murdered. Like, I was done. That was how I knew, like, retirement was was like it for me yeah i don't blame him that's really awful yeah so basically that case brought me to this case okay that's why we're talking about it today the remains in the suitcase were those of a girl they estimated that she weighed about 50 pounds the body had several broken bones that did not appear to have been treated medically there was nothing identifiable with the suitcase or the body and I'm guessing, you know, the burning made it hard to find DNA, but even if they had, or the little bit that they did have, like, what do you run it against if you don't mm-hmm. know even where to start, right? Like, it's not like everyone's in a DNA database. So for a long time, the case went unsolved. It was basically a cold case, and those who worked on it or knew about it called it the girl in the suitcase murder. They actually had facial reconstruction done, but no one came forward to identify her. I find it amazing how they can do that. Yeah, it's really cool. We will put those up, these up on our social media. There are pictures of the facial reconstruction. It's very interesting. We always think that's cool. Like, this is like mm-hmm. a full reconstruction, but even the sketches are interesting. So, yeah. So, basically, from the remains that were there, they were able to basically rebuild her face and give us an idea of what she would have looked like. As I mentioned, the case went cold until 2012. This is when Elaine confesses to her priest about her involvement in Melanie's disappearance. She told him that the girl had died like a dog after being confined and denied food or medication. Oh my god. 
the pastor, which I looked this up, he was not supposed to do this, but obviously super glad that he did. But he was like, nah, screw the oath I took as a pastor. Well, I'm yeah. To the police. Yeah. But they're not, I looked it up because I had the same reaction you did. Like, well, duh, obviously yeah. you're going to tell someone about that. But then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, like, in confession, like, you're not. And then I, well, I looked it up. I honestly I just looked at one website and I think it was for <laughs> Catholic priests. So or in the Catholic faith, so it might be different depending on what you practice or whatever, but I'm I'm pretty sure that in most religions, like, confession is, unless you're actively going to commit a crime, I believe, then you're supposed to keep it to yourself, but we don't care. Thank God this pastor went to the police. I just oh thought it was God. interesting that he was like, this is so bad, screw it all, <laughs> I'm going to the police. Oh, man. I mean, that would be a lot for a pastor to just, like, not tell anyone either, though. Like, oh my God, you I know this information. What? What? Also, I feel like that'd be hard. Like, I'm really good at keeping my friends' secrets. But if I hear a secret of someone that I do not know, like, I am telling all of my friends, which is, like, five people. So it's not spreading. But, like, if, like, not yeah. an important secret. Like, I'm not going to expose yeah, yeah, yeah. people. But you know what I mean? Like, yeah. when it's, the fact that when it's not connected to you, it's not your drama. It's not your, it's not your business. You're kind of like, ooh, did you hear? <laughs> Elaine is her mom, right? Is her, like, stepmom. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Elaine is the woman that Everton remarried. Or right. I'm not actually sure if he was ever married to her mom. But he was with, yeah. He was with, yeah. Okay. So the news of this confession reaches Detective Steve Ryan. At this time, he was working the cold case. This information led investigators to contact Jamaica Constabulary Forces and the Royal Canadian Mounty Police Liaison Officer in Kingston. Which is cool. I didn't know that RCMP officers were just, like, hanging in these, like, nice tropical places as liaison officers. Like, mm -hmm. so with their help, and again, this is really cool. Like, just the connection of all these police forces literally across the world working together. With their help, police are able to identify the victim's biological mother as Opal Austin. She, again, lived in Kingston, Jamaica. And the Toronto police actually sent people there. They flew there to interview her. And they took her DNA. They took a DNA sample just based off what Elaine had told the pastor. That came back with an actual name. They knew that Melanie was from Jamaica. Tracked down her mom, took a DNA sample, and finally a match was made. And the body found in the suitcase was positively identified as Melanie. Wow. Some good police work. We like it. Yeah. I'm sure the news of this kind of shocked Melanie's family. Like, they were told, and I don't know if they really believed it or not, but they were told that Melanie had run away and she was in the United States somewhere. She was just living in the U.S. They were probably hoping everything was fine and they she just had no way of contacting them. In one of the CTV News articles I mentioned earlier, now-retired Detective Steve Ryan said the following. So we executed the search warrant in 2013 because we wanted to get the layout of the apartment and I remember walking in here and just trying to take in, take in the atmosphere. I get it has changed, but the foundation of this place hasn't. If it could talk, what did it see? And what did Melanie see when she was walking in here and basically never came out again? What did she see? What was she thinking about? Behind the closed doors of that one bedroom apartment, Melanie was beaten, chained to a chair, forced to sleep on the floor to wash on the balcony and her head put in a toilet and flushed for punishment all while they were slowly starving her to death and there was a small closet in the apartment too small to sit where she would be forced to stand in the dark in one of the closets there were scratch marks on the wall and I imagined her 
doing this with her nails, trying to go through the drywall to get out into the hallway. And I thought, and I still think as a kid, who was she calling out for? Mom and dad are the ones you call out for when you are sick, you are hurt, when you are scared. She was all three and mom and dad are the ones that put her here in that closet. So who was she calling for help for? Her brother couldn't help her because he was getting beaten as well. So his job to survive was kind of walk that fine line between keeping dad happy and being Melanie's buddy at the same time. He was helpless. He couldn't help her and it wasn't his fault. So apartment 2203 is the first place they lived in, which is down here. And you see that fire exit there. It is striking to me because Melanie escaped despite the fact that she had 21 healing fractures, her vertebrae, her pelvis, her legs were broken. She weighed 50 pounds. She hadn't eaten. She dragged herself with her hands out of the apartment and into that stairwell. But once Everton learned of the escape, he sent her siblings out to find her. Ryan says it didn't take very long to look behind the door of the fire escape. Oof. Okay, deep breath. So obviously this is like super awful and I'm really glad that I made you read this and not well, like, me for once. Well, as I'm reading it, I'm like, this is the first time I'm hearing what's going on and I'm like... It's a lot and obviously during the article, Detective Ryan is kind of walking them through, I assume, I assume, because he's kind of talking as if he's like pointing things yeah. out like he's actually there. Um, I just thought this was like so important to put in our notes for this week. Like we had to kind of give his firsthand account of actually being there and working on this case and his personal connection. You can feel how deep this has scarred him. And obviously it's very evident why. The way he describes it just in that short quote, you can almost put yourself in Melanie's shoes and like yes. see what she experienced, which is very traumatic. And I cannot believe that she had to go through that. She was really like before she quote unquote disappeared it was like three years in Canada not that I would expect it to be longer but I don't know it just feels like it's it started instantly the abuse started instantly mm -hmm. around this time is when investigators start to realize that maybe Dwayne's death was not a suicide they actually exhume his body detective Brian said that that night before he exhumed the body he went by the cemetery and again just because he just speaks so well I'm gonna let Marie read another quote from him I stood by Dwayne's gravesite and I told him, I actually apologized to him and said that we are going to be disturbing him tomorrow because I wanted to make sure nobody did this to him or hurt him or killed him and stood there for just about five minutes and that was the first time I did that. But I just felt compelled because it is such a huge deal to dig somebody's body up who has been laid to rest for a decade. I just felt he should know we're going to disturb you, kid. Sorry. Oh my god, I have goosebumps. I know. I know. I'm like waiting for the episode where I'm going to cry. It's I'm not a huge crier, so you guys are probably waiting a long time. But uh, this is a really hard case. Like, oh, it, it almost like takes your breath away. Just Detective Ryan's emotions. And, and there are real people behind these investigations that are super invested. And it's just really nice to hear from them and to hear kind of, you know, a lot of people will get on the police for, we just did it right before, right? You obviously should call child welfare when you see something like this, but they didn't. And it's just, it reminds us that like, there are humans behind mm -hmm. these investigations and there are emotions and it's real and they'll make mistakes, but they also... They also figure really out what care, to do next. Mostly. Yeah. Unfortunately, when they did exhume Dwayne's body, his bones were so badly damaged, which obviously was somewhat consistent with the fall, but it was basically impossible to tell whether it was murder or suicide. 
It's also possible that, you know, it was an accident, that Dwayne had run away and was being abused, and then when he was brought back, he tried to escape down the fire escape and lost his balance and fell, right? Like, these are all options. But I think we can all agree that, like, most likely if Dwayne had been in a happy, supportive home, he would still be with us. So the big question now for me at least, is why accept raising these kids? These kids were living in Jamaica. It's reported that they were living in poverty, but this is clearly not a better life for them. Yes, yes. That's what I'm thinking. Like, it sounds like mom was really loving. And I think that Melanie actually had siblings back in Jamaica as well. Why accept raise these kids when you clearly don't want them? It's kind of speculated that they were put to work right away. They were expected to clean and cook and teach the other young children, so the biological children of Everton and Elaine, who were reportedly never abused. Oh, they were never abused? Not as far as I can tell. Well, not like, ugh, as in like, uh, Yes, but... You know, they should have, no, but yeah. yeah. (laughs) We get what you're saying. Yeah. So it's just like a giant question mark for me. The kids, I don't think, ever went to school. It's reported that they basically entered that apartment and maybe left a max of five times within the three years that they got there and then Melanie disappeared. Who is seeing these kids every once in a while? And I guess most people just mind their own business, but can we start not minding our own business more? Yeah, I agree. Well, it's like that one case we did where the husband did it and the neighbor like looked over the fence and was like, oh... That's and crazy. Then, yeah, and then like nine one one, like, yeah. and I was like, just yell at him to say, yeah. "Hey, I'm freaking seeing you. I can see you here right now. Yeah. Like, you might want to stop murdering your wife because I'm mm-hmm. a witness." Like, exactly. <laughs> like, I know there got to be a fine balance between like extreme paranoia and being like, eh, "That's none of my business." Yeah. <laughs> uh. I don't know where that is, and if someone knows where to find it, because I'm more on the paranoia side, you let Same. me know. <laughs> Same. In 2016, Everton went to trial, and the jury heard the horrible accounts of the abuse that Melanie endured. Jurors took only about four hours to find him guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years, the max in Canada. Good riddance, you got what you deserve, you probably deserve worse, but I'm happy you're in prison. Also in 2016, Elaine was found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison with no chance for parole for 16 years. Obviously, the details of this crime were super brutal. They were basically like, Elaine, there's no way you could have ignored this, right? You're basically just as much as fault. And it's like you always say in these types of cases, how do these people find each other and are both okay with going through with something like this? Yes, yeah. So prosecutors argued that Elaine Bittersing should spend 18 to 22 years in prison before having a chance of parole, while the defense suggested 10, so they settled, like, somewhere in the middle, kind Mm -hmm. of. It speculated a lot, and it was part of Elaine's defense that she could have been a victim of abuse as well at the hands of Everton, which, from, from what we know about abusers in these types of scenarios, is a very big possibility. However... This abuse to all of these children, to Dwayne, to Melanie, and to Cleon, was extensive. Like, to the point where uh, it's so hard to say that she should have done something about it if she really was being so badly abused. But obviously, like, her state and the state that Melanie was in are not even comparable. She's also the adult in this situation. And Mm -hmm. knowing that children are at risk and have maybe more proof of being more badly abused than if she was as well i just feel like yeah you say you're saying it it very well they're vulnerable and it is adults jobs to 
care for these children and mm-hmm. it, yes you're you're saying it well they also though argued that she was kind of unaware of what her husband was doing which is like ma'am you lived in an apartment enough of that and, shit yeah <laughs> and from what was described with melanie's experience experience from, from yeah, start right, yeah. to finish yeah it's like there's no way that could just <laughs> no not be seen it never really became clear to anyone why these two parents hated these children so much Melanie was forced to sleep on the floor, was locked in a closet, confined to a barrel, chained to a wall, and beaten extremely often. The judge said during Elaine's trial, Melanie came to Canada with hopes and dreams. Over a period of up to three years, the persons entrusted with her care crushed those hopes and dreams with a cruel, callous, relentless, and ultimately lethal course of physical, psychological, and emotional abuse. What happened to Melanie is inexplicably sad. Elaine tried to appeal her conviction on the idea that she should have been granted a judge alone trial due to negative publicity surrounding this case. So basically she didn't want a jury. She wanted a trial where the judge would only be the one to hear the details and he would decide. From what I understand, sometimes this is an option, but not in this case. They were like, nope, (laughs) you're getting a jury trial. Mm -hmm. So her appeal was based on the fact that she didn't get what she wanted and thought that all the negative publicity and the coverage of her husband's trial would impact the jury's decision. In January of 2022, the court upheld the conviction. No new trial for you, Elaine. Melanie's brother, Cleon, spoke at Elaine's sentencing hearing. He said that he still has night sweats, nightmares, as well as an eating disorder as a result of what he saw his sister suffer and go through and what he experienced himself. For sure, he's not describing all of the effects that the trauma has had on him. And it's amazing that he's at the sentencing hearing and uh, Cleon, our our hearts are with you because this is, we are so sorry that you ever had, parents are supposed to protect their children. Like you said earlier, like it's just unthinkable. It brings me back a bit to the Cassandra Boudreaux case. It's just like, how? I, I yeah. just just... And then it stays with you for a lifetime. It came out during the trial that Melanie was dead before her body was stuffed in the suitcase. What actually killed her was kind of unclear, leaving the jury to determine whether she died from severe neglect, abuse, or drowning. No charges were ever brought in Dwayne's death. When all was done, Detective Ryan made a Zoom call to Kingston, Jamaica and spoke to Melanie's sister, Raquel. He asked this, If you had a chance to speak with Everton and Elaine right now, what would you say to the two of them? The answer from Melanie's older sister was simply what everyone would want to know. For me, anybody would ask, why? Why? Okay, how do you feel? (laughs) This was a heavy one, a really heavy one. Our hearts go out to Melanie's family to Cleon, and no one should have ever suffered through anything like this. From beginning to end of this case, it's it's just really sad the way they came to Canada for, you know, a chance to succeed with their life and have opportunities. And right away, this is what they got pulled into and this is how it finished for them. And Cleon, even him, like having to now have those memories for the rest of his life, it's it's just really awful for all of those children and the mom that you know sent 
them there or I don't know. It's just yeah. a lot. I think I forgot to mention somewhere, but I had put somewhere in my notes that Melanie was really looking forward to coming to Canada. She was even thinking about studying to become a nurse. Like they, they were excited. Like this yeah. was their new beginning. It's going to be exciting. They were going to live with their dad, which I don't know if they, you know, I don't think they knew him that well. Like mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine the horror of expecting life to be some way in such a positive way and then arriving and it being your worst nightmare. And now I have to go on another rant. So this information is from a section of Canada.ca. If you think that someone you know is being abused by a family member, it is important to act in the way that is safe and appropriate for everyone involved. Family violence is not a private matter. Family violence causes significant health impacts and can be a matter of life or death. Your involvement could help improve any situation like this one. You might be concerned about getting involved because you feel that family violence is a private matter and none of your business, but it's important to remember that someone's life may depend on it. Pay attention if someone seems sad, withdrawn, or afraid, is unreasonably angry or aggressive, is nervous when a particular family member is around, makes excuses for family members' behaviors, is sick or misses school or work a lot, has a change in a job or school performance, tries to cover bruises and drinks more or uses more drugs than usual. Or if you see a family member putting another one down, one family member trying to keep another family member away from his or her work or other activities, one family member acting as if he or she or they owns another one, a family member contacting another one while at work just to scare them or intimidate them. Now, what can you do if you're noticing some of these signs? Family violence is never the victim's fault. The most important thing that you can do is offer your support without any blame or judgment. Make sure everyone is safe. Choose a time and place where you can create a private conversation. Be careful about communication on text or email that could put someone in danger. Never confront an abuser or do anything that makes you feel unsafe. Get support for your own feelings from a friend or a professional that you trust. Let the person be in charge. Listen respectfully to what the person needs and don't try to take over. Offer support. Before you approach the person, find services in your area that might be helpful to them. Don't expect to know all the answers and explore options together. If a child or younger person tells you that they are being abused, believe the child. Listen, don't interrupt, and don't judge. React calmly and don't ask for more details than they're willing to give you. Tell the child that the abuse is not their fault and that it was right to tell you. Write down what the child tells you in their own words. If you know a child is actively being sexually abused, report it to the police immediately in an emergency call to 911. Every province and territories has laws that says that any person who believes a child is being abused must report it. You will not get in trouble of making a report. If you have further questions on how to recognize child abuse, you can call your local child protection services. Talk to a nurse, a social worker, a doctor, or a teacher. You can also call the police's non-emergency line. There's also a good old kids help phone at 1-888-668-6868. A lot of the websites that also have resources on them are really great because they kind of have a quick exit, a quick exit button, like the same for domestic abuse. Like if you're Googling and your abuser walks into the room, so you can click an exit really quickly and they won't save on your history, which is really interesting. That's amazing. Yeah. Let's not, uh, let's, let's bug people. Let's be intrusive in their lives. (laughs) (laughs) 
No, but seriously, you could really save a life. You could. It's important, especially trust your gut and act on it. And there are, again, you don't have to, I mean, you can call 911, like we just said, but you don't have to immediately call the emergency line. There are other ways that you can just make sure that what you're doing is right. And the more we do this podcast, the more I have less of a mentality that, oh, it won't happen where I live or whatever the case may be. But the more you search your area, the more you listen to true crime, the more you realize it can really happen anywhere. And Mm -hmm. if you see these signs, it could turn into something like this case, which is just very awful and horrifying so and that is why this week we'll be donating to canadian child abuse association this is from their website the board of directors of the nonprofit society has been made up of police officers social workers crown prosecutors child welfare workers alberta justice council and treatment specialists The CCAA delivers excellence in child witness court preparation and curriculum through service, education, online learning, and leadership. If you would like to donate to Canadian Child Abuse Association, the link to donate will be in our description and Instagram and TikTok bio. Pictures for this case will be posted on our Instagram, so please follow us at Terrible True Crime. And if you enjoy the show, please subscribe and leave us a review below. If you have any case suggestions, please send us a message on our socials or email us at terribletruecrime at gmail.com. Thank you for joining us and see you next time.